Okay, so today we have uh, Sally Fallon Morell that I'll be interviewing. Uh, Sally needs no introduction, but just for uh, um, you know, conversation's sake, Sally Fallon Morell is the founding president of the Weston A. Price Foundation and the author and co-author of numerous books on traditional diets. And in particular, uh, I'd like to talk to Sally about her newest book, uh, Nourishing Diets, How Paleo, Ancestral, and Traditional Peoples Really Ate. Sally, thanks so much for taking the time out of your busy day to chat with me today about your, your new book. Um, yeah. You're welcome. So I, I, you know, typically I would, I would ramble on and kind of chit chat for a little bit to, to, you know, get folks to, you know, to tell me about your story, how you got into this stuff, but because you're so well known and, and there's so uh, much information that you have on the internet, I'm just going to refer people to the incredible amount of work that is available on Weston A. Price and in your books in the show notes below. And uh, with your permission, I'd just like to, to dig right into this, uh, the, the topic of, of your, your book for today. Okay, just let me mention the, the best place I like to send people to is my blog, which is okay. nourishingtraditions.com. Perfect. Yeah, thank you. Perfect. That'll be the first link I have in the, uh, in the show notes. Thank you. Okay, so the 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 opening line of of your newest book, Nourishing Diets, um, is a quote from Dr. Weston A. Price, and that quote blew me away. And I, I don't know how I have never uh, thought of this before, but he said the the most universal the most universal disease in the world is tooth de decay, and I was just dumbfounded by that because everybody has it basically. And yeah, um, like so. I guess basically, I'm just wondering: what, would would you say that he said that back in the 1930s? Um, would you say that this yes. is still the case today? Is it is it still the most universal disease in the world? Well, I would say yes. Now, most people don't think of tooth decay as a disease, do they? No, they don't. They just think of it as a uh, just kind of an annoyance. And I think the reason we can do that is because we have dentists and yeah. very skilled dentists and if we didn't have dentists this disease of tooth decay would be impacting us all in a very painful way all the time yeah but we do have dentists and dentists are very good at repairing the damage but yes i think probably 95 percent of people uh living in the modern world have at least one or more cavities and th and that is a disease it's a sign of uh, poor nutrition it's a sign that things aren't right in the body. Now I say 95%, but what's interesting is that the children being brought up on our diet, following our principles, what we call the wise traditions principles, mm -hmm. tend not to have tooth decay. My grandsons, I have four grandsons, none of them has tooth decay, mm. uh, which is amazing because <laughs> I had tooth decay and uh, my kids had a little tooth decay, less than me, but my grandsons have none. So uh, it's, it's something to be completely prevented. Totally. Well, and it's, it's amazing considering that, you know, when, when Dr. Weston A. Price, um, you know, first started going to these um, so-called, you know, primitive cultures in the early 1920s and 30s, he found tooth decay at less than 1% in some of these, yeah. these other yeah. cultures. Yeah. And in, in Africa, he found six tribes with no tooth decay in any member of the tribe. He was just amazed at that. And of course, the teeth are a part of the body, inside the body, that we can see. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, you know we can't see much else and he used the teeth as a kind of barometer or indicator of how good the rest of the health was and you know i say that for most of us tooth decay is just an inconvenience but actually uh, one of the fastest growing fields in medicine is pediatric dentistry yeah and we are getting reports of children with all of their teeth coming in rotten now uh, this is more than just an inconvenience this is very very serious yeah i mean i i had tons of cavities growing up and um i also had braces and and uh, yeah, me four, too <laughs> yeah, four, four of my brothers and sisters had braces uh but my parents didn't and they they have excellent teeth and my grandparents didn't either and and yeah. You know, my dad used to sit at the table and say, I just don't understand it. Your mom and I have perfect teeth and perfect eyesight. Why do you kids all need braces and glasses? Yeah. And I guess that, that question just sunk into my psyche. And I have spent the last uh, 20 years uh, <laughs> trying to tell people why, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you know, when, when I first came across your work, um, probably five or six years ago, um, I was <clears throat> I was born and raised on a mixed organic farm, and you know we we ate very very well, but uh, my my parents, you know, wanting to give you know our their their children the absolute best life they could, and and um, you know they bought into the the kind of health propaganda at the time, which you know don't like when I was first born we had a, we had a milk cow. And, uh, you know, we had raw milk every day. And by the time I was five or six, we actually, uh, we got rid of the milk cow. We switched to soy milk, almond milk, rice milk, uh, tons, oh, okay. of, tons of, tons of vitamins. Um, and, uh, you know, the now, you know, it's 10, 10, 15 years later. And as kids, I hated it. We hated soy milk. We hated eating it. Like all, all I wanted was to have real milk on my cereal. Cause I remember mm -hmm. when I was a kid. And, um, but my, my mom at the time thought that that was what was best for her children. And, and now, I mean, we're, we've kind of come full circle and we're, we're back on the, the proper diet that we should be eating. And, you know, the, just the, the personal benefits that we've seen in our life has been incredible. And, you know, I look back and it's just, it's dumbfounding how, how we got to where we were. And after reading your book, um, I just, uh, I, I started asking myself is like, how, how did we get to where we were? And, and in, in your, you talk a little bit about, you know, where kind of the insidious origins of our, our, our iconic food pyramid came from. Um, yeah. Could you just kind of fill us in on a bit of the, the background story of, of how we got from the, the incredibly healthy primitive populations of the world everywhere where they were eating the biologically appropriate diet for their climatic and geographic context to where we are now. Well, I'm I don't I'm not an expert on the details, but um, my understanding is that the USDA uh, there was actually some kind of congressional law mm -hmm. uh, direct USDA United States Department of Agriculture to look into this question: What is a healthy diet? And believe it or not, the dietitians of the time, and we're talking before World War II, uh, they thought that America had a pretty good diet. Americans were quite healthy. Uh -huh. uh, they had good teeth, tall and strong. The only exception to that was the rural South, 
where people were quite poor and living mainly on corn. Yeah. And they already knew the solution to that. They went out and got chickens and milk cows for these people. And that, that solved the problem. <laughs> but um, the, um, what, what happened was that people with agendas mm -hmm. got involved in this question. The original recommendations for the food pyramid, I believe, were you know lots of fruits and vegetables, meat, fats, and everything. And they took her recommendations, and came, what they came back with was this pyramid with uh, that was very heavy in the carbs. Mm -hmm. And the woman who had formulated all this said, "Hey, what happened to my recommendations?" And uh, they gave all kinds of lame excuses, like you know people can't afford the vegetables, people won't eat the vegetables, but what what happened is that what was started out to be something that was supposed to be helpful to the population became a marketing tool. Yeah. And at the yeah. same time, we we had the application of industrial processes on food. And I I like to say, you know, I'm not against industry. Um, I, we need industry. We need industries made our lives so much easier and more comfortable and you know i like electricity i, I like uh, airplanes cars computers i like all those things but it is inappropriate to apply this heavy-handed industrial these heavy-handed industrial processes onto food yeah uh, we need a different system for food we need artisan low-tech i'm not against technology for for food but it needs to be low-tech mm -hmm. and always in mind of increasing the nutrient value of the but what happened was we got the big, big boys, <laughs> big rough industry applied to food production. And that resulted in food that was less nourishing. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is each, each generation becomes weaker. And the current generation of children is really suffering from these mistakes that we've made. Absolutely. And I mean, in, in, the, in your book, you talk about... Oh, I'm getting, getting a bit of feedback from your end there. I'm not sure. Did you? Uh, I'm, you're okay. Did you, yeah. yeah. I'm not sure why it's. You're, you're fine. Okay. So the in your book you you talk about uh, Anso Keys and kind of the um, uh, maybe I I read into a bit too much, but it, it seemed like he had an instrumental um, role in the kind of formulation of the food pyramid. And I was just blown away at your kind of diagnosis of, of where he formulated the theory and the circumstances of where that, that theory arose and all the red flags that came up for him, you know, and continue to, to come up for everyone who supports that diet. Um, yeah, how does, how does that kind of story tie into? So, so Ansel Keys, I don't think Ansel Keys had much to do with the actual food pyramid. Okay. But he's the one and to promote the Mediterranean diet mm -hmm. and claiming that the Mediterranean diet followed the food pyramid guidelines. In other words, it's very uh -huh. low in fat and very high in carbohydrates. Now, Ansel Keys, um, he, was a, uh, he was a postgraduate student in London and he and his wife were living in this flat that was very hard to heat. So they were very cold. And <laughs> He got this opportunity to go to Italy in the winter, and he thought this was a great idea. So they really liked sunny Italy. They really loved it there. 
and they wanted to keep coming back. So um, he made sure that happened. All the conferences he held were in Italy. Well, the first time he went was right after the war, and uh, Italians were pretty much starving at that time. They didn't have the butter they wanted. They, they were out of cheese. They were, there wasn't much meat, and so they were living on a kind of high-carb diet, which is, which is a, um, um, a poverty diet, yeah. right? And he uh, concluded that this was the regular, healthy Mediterranean <laughs> diet. <laughs> now, I've lived in the Mediterranean. I lived in uh, Montpellier, which is as Mediterranean as you can get. It's right on the Mediterranean, okay? I lived with a French family, and I want to tell you, uh, I didn't see many vegetables when I lived with them. We'd have salads, and, and in season we had strawberries. Yeah. The vegetables were too expensive for this family. What we did have was charcuterie. We had ham and pate. And then for dinner, we'd have a chicken or a roast that was larded. Uh -huh. um, and then we'd have dessert from the pastry shop, you know. Um, so there were quite a few carbs on this diet, but there was lots and lots of fat, lots of dairy products, uh, lots of organ meats, and, um, and, and some bread, of course, uh, uh, white bread. So uh -huh. the, the diet was not at all what he says. And um, at the end of his life, he was bemoaning. He said, the Italians are no longer eating their traditional diet. Oh, isn't it a shame? They are, um, they have too much fat in their diet and they're eating too much ice cream. <laughs> to laugh because ice cream was an Italian invention, you know, <laughs> back in the 1500s, we were eating ice cream. <laughs> so um, he, I, I, I think I made it kind of humorous the the section on the Mediterranean diet. Definitely, and well, uh, him because, and he was very pompous and you know yeah. took himself very serious. <laughs> and um, it's funny, you know, just after I um, I just finished your book, and then a friend of mine, I was telling telling her about your your book, and particularly Anso Keys and. And there was actually a, a radio special on uh, CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, which is kind of our radio station up here. And they were doing a, um, like a, a series on Ansel Keys and, and saturated fats. And, and um, apparently when he also went to, um, when he was in Italy, it was, like you said, it was after the war, but it was also during Lent. <laughs> yes, that's right. One of the times he was there was during Lent. And then I also bring up another study in Spain. So these researchers go out to Spain and they're really gung-ho about the Mediterranean diet. And they get there and they do diet surveys of adolescents in Spain and they're shocked because they don't, they're not eating any vegetables. They're hardly eating any carbs. All they eat is sausage. <laughs> and the researchers are so dismayed that the uh, young people in Spain don't know what their diet is. <laughs> And they're, they're going to educate the parents. This is what it basically comes out. We're going to harangue and harass and propagandize yeah. the yeah. parents so that they eat vegetables to these kids. In Italy, uh, Ansel Keys was going to harangue and proselytize the children to go home and tell their parents how they should be eating. Yeah. Well, I remember doing the same thing when I was a kid in, in, in school. Is like I, I brought home pamphlets and colored photos of the pyramid that we had to hang up on the fridge. and. And uh, yeah. I mean, it's just the, 
you know, the, you, you can look at it, whether it's an accident or there was, you know, some, uh, you know, directed, you know, insidious motivations behind this stuff by industry and is really irrelevant at, at this point. I mean, the, the, in, in your book and many others has laid out the, the shaky foundations that our current food system is based on. And we're getting the feedback now, as you said, from the, the last, you know, four or five generations are can, just declining in their health and all these other illnesses are, are popping up. Um, do you, do you see that, that trends are starting to shift? Do you think we're over the hump or do we still have a bunch of work left to do to, to straighten out our, um, kind of brainwashing when it comes to diet? Well, we have a huge amount of work left to do, but at the same time, the people have to be ready. Yeah. I mean, it has to be an individual realization. We were wrong. I need to change the way I eat. It's yeah. my responsibility. And when people come, when that light bulb goes off, we, like, we want to be there for them yeah. with our information, yeah. uh, with our chapter leaders all over the world, yeah. with our sources to, to good food. But you can't just talk to people about this if they're not ready. Food is a very sensitive yes. subject. And um, I, I was asked once to speak to some Southern ladies at a French restaurant. And I, I, they were, they were um, very insulted by what I said. And um, they, it's just because basically what you're saying is you brought up your kids wrong. Yeah. And yeah. it's a very difficult message, and, and I don't like to be the one carrying that message. What I like to say is, oh, you've come to this realization that something's got to change. Let's, can I help you? Yeah. I don't want to be, yeah. you've done it wrong, I'm bashing you over the head. So, um, but what I call hap see happening, I call it the natural selection of the wise. <laughs> because... because <laughs> Because nature's way is natural selection. Yeah. And what, what's happening, we're now on our fourth generation of processed food in this country. Mm -hmm. And Pottinger, with his studies with Protestant, with Protestant cats, with Pottinger's cats, uh, he found that by the fourth generation on food inappropriate to cats, mm -hmm. uh, there was no more reproduction. And so the people who continue to eat this way, it's a very... It sounds like a very cruel thing to say, but it, this is how nature handles these things. Yeah. Uh, they will die out. They yeah. will not have offspring. And uh, we see this already with, you know, a quarter of our couples infertile, probably much higher number than that. Yeah. At the same time, uh, we actually have the knowledge today and the resources today to eat better than we've ever eaten. Yeah. And the people yeah. who are choosing this, they will survive, they will have healthy offspring, and I, that's why I call it the natural selection of the wise. And the thing I like to point out is that this diet is not what you call health food. I mean, it's not the awful, restrictive, whole grain, low fat, you yeah. know, lots of vegetables diet that we were told we had to eat to be healthy. And most people say, screw you, I'm, you know, I'd rather just enjoy my food than have to eat all that horrible stuff in order to add a few years of life to my human carcass you know um, our diet includes everything it, you can have all the butter you want it includes dairy products includes meat fats salt you, you need salt we have soft drinks in our diet 
delicious, healthy soft drinks. You can have desserts on our diet. You can have grains on our diet. Nothing is excluded in our diet. Mm -hmm. What's different is that you're paying attention to how the food was grown, prepared, and, and prepared. Yeah, which, I mean, is is so simple, yet it's revolutionary when it comes to the hundreds of other diets that um, that are out there that are everything that your diet isn't, which is they're, they're restrictive, they're dogmatic. Yes, um, yes. And yes. they change like the wind. <laughs> and, it was, and, and they make unrealistic promises, too. I, I mean, I, I don't make... Yeah you know, huge promises about our diet. It takes a while. Yeah. Uh, we've seen some yeah. remarkable things happen, but, um, you know, you've, you've been on um, industrial food for four generations. It, it takes a while to return to health. Yeah. Which is one of the questions I actually wanted to, um, to chat with you about is, is like, what is kind of an, an, an average timeline that um, people can expect before they start to feel um, or to feel or see some kind of results. Because you know, I, I know I hear a lot of, um, I myself went vegetarian and vegan for a while because, you know, I, I bought into, you know, all the, the propaganda and I did my own research and I, I watched videos about the China study and, and all this other garbage that, um, but I was, I was so convinced that that was the right thing to do. And, and so I switched. But within, you know, a few, like I was, I, I did that for about a year I, I could feel and see the, the deleterious effects of that on me, but I know other people that have done it for 25 years until the light kicks in and other people still who, um, you know, when they first switch over, they'll see these really, they, they feel better, they have more energy. And then, you know, like I said, 20 years later, they, they crash. So yeah. What are some of the, the timelines folks can see before, you know, some of the, they start to build up their, you know, their B12 and, and <clears throat> get more of these enzymes and things back in their diet so that they can start to feel kind of whole again. Well, uh, you know, everyone's different mm -hmm. and I hear all kinds of stories. The most remarkable one recently was a woman came up to me at a conference and she said that she had suffered from irritable bowel syndrome for 20 years. And she had tried literally everything short of surgery. She just didn't want to do the surgery. And she heard about us and she started to eat sauerkraut, you know, raw sauerkraut. Mm -hmm. Within two weeks, she had no more ir irritable bowel syndrome. It was completely gone. So was, this was just a food. Yeah. Um, so uh, there are remarkable stories like that. Um, I know that I had uh, some night vision problems, some floater problems in my eyes. And when I started to take a uh, type of cod liver oil, the fermented cod liver oil, they cleared up within a week, both of those things within a week. Wow. But at the same time, um, if you are starting out really sick, you know, these things take longer. I know that former vegans, vegetarians usually feel better right away when they get back on the meat foods. But if you have stuck with this for a long, long time, the B12 damage can be irreversible. Hmm. So every, everyone's going to respond differently. Uh, another uh, thing I find commonly, you know, we're saying you need fats, you need these animal fats, you can have all you want. But some people, They've been on low fat for so long, it's very difficult to start digesting fats again. Yeah. They're not making enough bile to digest fats. Their cholesterol levels are too low mm -hmm. to make enough bile. We make bile out of cholesterol. Mm -hmm. So they have to very gradually uh, build up the fats in those circumstances.
Yeah. And I've, I've even noticed that for myself, like we've, I've been, you know, really committed to this diet for the last uh, three or four years now. And um, the, like, the amount of fat that I've been able to eat in my diet has, has steadily increased. And now to the point, like the, some of the effects that I've noticed is I don't get hungry anymore. Um, I, yes, right. I'm only eating, I'm only eating two meals a day now as opposed to eating three and, and not not because i i'm i'm starving myself or it's something i'm giving up it's just i'm not hungry anymore i have i have two big meals that are really high in fat and like and i work you know 16 18 hour days <laughs> in the summertime and you know physical labor uh, it's just amazing and i've i've had the same thing a lot of our our customers are um you know kind of ex ex vegans ex vegetarians and they say the same thing you know once once they can have one pork chop for breakfast and it does them all day. Whereas yeah. before they were, they were yeah. snacking on nuts and granola bars and, and fruit. Yes, exactly. Oh. They're always hungry. You know, I'm the same. I, I have two meals. Most days I just eat two meals. Yeah. Sometimes I eat three, but, um, and those are meals I really enjoy. They're yeah. just, they're greasy and good. <laughs> and, um, you know, I enjoy my soft bacon in the morning and the scrambled eggs with extra yolks and the, or the oatmeal, soaked oatmeal with, you know, four or five tablespoons of butter on it. <laughs> and, and you really enjoy that meal. You, you're satisfied. And then you stop thinking about food because you are so satisfied and you go ahead and do your work and you're not hungry. You don't eat it. Going to the vending machine to get a candy bar doesn't even cross your mind. No. You're too busy. Yeah. No. Um, okay, so coming back a bit more to the, the, the book, I, the, the, before the, even the, the first line of your book starts, there's, there's um, kind of an introduction or a, um, um, by who was the doctor that did, it, that did the introduction? Oh, Dr. Callan, yes. Dr. Callan, yeah. And We've been colleagues many years, yes. Uh -huh. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he said that, that the, he had two responses to your book. One was expected, one was unexpected. And the, the expected was that, um, you know, he was just like the, to, to hear the, the incredible health and vitality, um, and the, the simplicity and the beauty of these landscapes and the diets that, that all these traditional peoples were eating from all around the world. I mean, you cover North America, South America, the far North Africa, the Mediterranean, Japan, China, like it's everywhere. You really cover Australia. Australia. That, that, South um, you really cover all your bases and just to, to, um, to see how they're eating and healthy, how healthy they were is just, um, it's just amazing. And, and, but then the, the, the second half of that was that he, he the unexpected thing that he felt was, um, was a profound sense of loss and a sadness at that, what we had missed. And, um, you know, as I, when I finished the book, I, I was in the, felt exactly the same way. There, there was a lot of stuff that I knew um, from doing, you know, research and following your guys' work for the last couple of years. But um, the way you put it together and the stories and the, it just, it blew me away. And, and even still today, I'm, everybody I, I talked to, <laughs> rambling about this book and, and about how, um, you know, how our world used to be in terms of the human health, but also the planetary health. And um, so I guess that my, my question is the, you know, you have settler accounts from North America from the late 1400s, from in Australia, it's from the 1700s about 
how these landscapes were park-like settings, dripping with animals, um, you know, diverse and and flora and fauna life. Um, the the people, beautiful. They were beautiful. The, the people were strong, yeah. tall, handsome, living to a hundred plus years. Uh, it wasn't all rosy, like like you you mentioned, which I I, I really think is is important too to to mention the 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 tribal aspect and the you know um, the quality of life for the women was was generally poorer than the men because they a lot of the work befell them. But for, all in all, they were an incredibly healthy, thriving society. And now we look at um, like what our world looks like today with you know we're in the sixth largest uh, extinction event um since the, like the last asteroid hit us and this one is entirely anthropocentric we've got peak oil peak energy peak phosphorus um the, the health of our you know people and children are is is in ruins the um, and it's just that when you contrast those two things together uh in one of the lines in your book you say that the indigenous people all of the world were managing their land in a in a way similar to kind of uh, like modern permaculture, which is one of the, the things that I'm trained in and what we use on our farm. And so I guess, what, first off, do you think it's possible for us to get back to that kind of a, a global kind of paradise or Eden? And, um, and what are the steps to that, if it is possible? Yeah. Uh, well, and you say a global paradise or Eden, and the explorers and anthropologists who first went to these places couldn't help but use those words because yeah. people were so beautiful, smiling. I mean, imagine coming into a village where everyone is perfect, perfectly formed and has beautiful white teeth, yeah. and they're all smiling and happy. And, and uh, But they are a tribe. They have a group um energy, so to speak, group consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I think the parable of the prodigal son is really what we need to think of here. So the prodigal son leaves the father, he leaves the paradise mm -hmm. and goes out to seek his own way. And this is a very important part of our spiritual evolution. Mm -hmm. And he ends up feeding pigs the husks right? So he's totally immersed in matter. That's what feeding the pigs means. And he's eating the husks. So he's eating, you know, white bread and um, soy milk, right? So he's eating the husks. And then he says, my, the angels in my father's house are better off than I am here. Mm -hmm. I, I will arise and return to my father. Mm -hmm. And that is so important, that word I, because all of a sudden he has an individual consciousness. And this whole voyage and uh, um, yeah, voyage and uh, of suffering, mm -hmm. and it's been suffering, yeah. is the purpose is to develop the I. And then once we have that I, we can individually go back to to eating the right way, taking care of our landscapes and so forth. Let's face it, the primitive people, there was no choice in this. Yeah. They could, didn't say, I would like to have a pork chop this morning. They ate, <laughs> they had to eat whatever was, there was no choice. There was, they had, didn't have to think about what went in their mouths. And we today, if we want to regain that state of good health, we have to think about every morsel that we eat. Mm -hmm. So we have to have that eye consciousness. 
So I'm getting a little bit esoteric here, but well, that's, that's but, perfect. Um, Plan. It's all part of the plan, and we should feel sad. We should feel this sense of loss, uh, because only by feeling that way will we take the steps that we need to reverse it. Huh. That yeah, that is amazing, and and it it really fits into my own uh, personal beliefs as well. And and um, you know, one of the um, one of the things that that. Uh, uh, we talk a lot about in, in the courses, the, the, the permaculture courses that we teach is, is this idea of um, uh, the successional cycle or the process that an ecosystem or a community goes, uh, the, of evolution that a community goes through over a long period of time. And so you imagine there's a, there's a disturbance, there's a disturbance event, you have Eden, there's, it's a climax forest, there's a disturbance event, and you have to work your way back up to that um the climax forest and at different stages there's kind of some unsavory characters in there like you know after this disturbance there's a lot of weeds that are prickly and thorny and and they have yes, yes. Lots of things that they ooze out on you and you touch them and and it has to stem from you know more complex and eventually you get back to the the climax ecosystem but there's that process of growth and different stages have to occur like if you try to plant an apple tree in uh, a lawn which is a very early successional ecosystem it's not going to do very well you, first you have to create the conditions for that apple tree or that forest garden to thrive um, and sometimes it takes a long time but if you if you try to force function the the climax ecosystem or the the eden uh it can be a whole bunch of work <clears throat> and so uh i i really i i find that analogy very analogous to um you know our own kind of like you said as you said spiritual development and even the community dynamics that exist today in the in the work that you know my parents had to do and and uh when they made the transition to organic agriculture 30 years ago and on it's unbelievable what they had to go through compared to how easy it is for me now to have these conversations about organic and spraying chemicals on your food is is a bad thing <laughs> well you know and we have uh, Dr. Tom Cowan often says it's really easy actually it's not hard <laughs> and we have these choices today I mean look at the progress we've made with raw milk and I know it's difficult in Canada but in the yeah. United States you can pretty much get raw milk anywhere today yeah and one way or another hook or crook you can get raw milk <laughs> and that is a huge uh, um, improvement uh, we can get, you know, natural pastured eggs. We can get naturally raised beef and, and other meats. We can get these things. And one of the things that makes it possible is the internet, which we didn't yeah. have before. So here's a technology that is actually going to make small work where it didn't before. Yeah. So, um, we, we're, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm actually a great believer in technology. Uh, it's just we have to use it properly, and every it's just like every bit of food that you eat, you have to think about. Every technology that you use, you have to think about. Do I choose this technology or don't? I, I know there's a technology of zapping the genes in our plants. I just don't think this is a very good technology to use. Yeah. Um. So it has to be the individual choices. Um. That each one of us makes and then eventually because of the natural selection of the wise you know everyone will be making it so i'm i'm the eternal optimist <laughs> i believe 
I believe in God and I believe in man and and man I have great faith in man mankind that's 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 all the um all the saturated fats that you're getting that makes you so happy yeah right <laughs> it does yeah right I was reading something in the National Enquirer of all places about I've got to contact this doctor who was saying that people who are very aware and very alert, they need more salt than others because you need the sodium and chloride for your brain to work. And all this low salt has kind of just dumbed down the population. We have pregnant women avoiding salt. There's no salt in baby food. Yeah. And mothers are told not to give their children salt. And, and that has been a, a terrible, terrible thing with terrible consequences. Definitely. I mean, in one of the, um, one of the things that, that you, um, you know, your diet that you prescribe is, is that, you know, an average um, adult person needs one, one and a half um, teaspoons of salt per day, of salt. Yeah. which is, and some people need more. Yeah. You know, I, and, and I mean, you know, when, when I look at my own diet, I think that's, like, that's probably about what I'm, what I'm eating, but to think about eating that much in one is, and, and especially how, yeah. how, how salt phobic people are, I, I I come back to this all the time, and, and it's not just in this area. I mean, it's in it's in agriculture, it's an education system. It's it's the same pattern repeats itself at a bunch of different levels of our society. But honestly, everything that we've been taught is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a very assumption. If the government's telling you to do something, it's wrong. I, I remember that. once reading an article about beekeeping, and the guy said. Absolutely, a hundred percent about what USDA tells you about beekeeping is wrong. Yeah, hundred percent. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, um, I think that's a very good way to start. Is that assumption? And I was actually sort of like that even as a child. My parents did not know what to do with me. I mean, if I was told something, I was going to argue against. <laughs> so, I think it's a very good way to be. But, but yes. And we each need to, you know, um, do this on our own. And by the way, uh, and I say this in the book, one of the w benefits of living in modern society is the ready access to salt. Yeah. And salt was a scarce commodity in the old days. Uh, look at the, for example, the American Indians. They had salt traders. They had special families that traded salt all over the continent. And if something happened, if they were killed or... Mm -hmm. um, if they couldn't get to your little village, y you ran out of salt. Yeah. And so you were, it was really a very precarious situation. And I often wonder if, you know, the Indians, um, there was a tremendous um, reduction in their population. And this is blamed on smallpox. And of course, yeah. most of it was smallpox. But I often wonder whether uh, the, uh, there was some, something that happened that reduce their access to salt and make it made them more interesting vulnerable that's, i've never read that i just that's interesting you know it's it's funny that was one of the questions i didn't i didn't have down here but i'm i'm one of the books you you reference in in your book is is um uh 1491 uh mm -hmm. north america looked like prior to, to columbus and uh you know, I'm, I'm in my mind, I'm, <clears throat> I'm contrasting your book and like the health of these people and how they were so resistant to disease and how uh, at the, you, you reference one doctor who, um, you know, coming to the conclusion, he was a Western doctor working in a, in a traditional settlement up in the Inuit um, communities. And he came to the conclusion that if somebody came down with tuberculosis, 
kind of eating the modern diet, as opposed to leaving them in the hospital and trying to cure them, the best thing was for them to go back out on the ice and to yeah. start eating seals. Yeah. Fat again. And um, yeah. just like that, like, so there's that, that natural vibrancy and that health. And then you contrast that with some of the things that this fellow is saying in this book is that, you know, 95% of the population was wiped out by, um, you know, tuber- or, um, smallpox, smallpox. And, and measles. And I was just curious how, like what, what happened there? Was there something else that, was there some other factor that, that played in the role? Like, did they, did they come in and, and disrupt their food system first or, and I, I never thought of salt because that, that very well could be. No, I, I, uh... I raised the question in the book, you know, we just, what is the explanation for the rapid demise of the um, Native Americans from smallpox? And in, in many cases, it would hit a village and one or two village tribal members would survive and that's all. And yeah. by the way, one of those was Squanto who helped the pilgrims. Yeah. Uh, he survived the smallpox. Uh, so I don't know the answer to this. Uh, one theory I have, uh, just a theory, is so these people grew up in this wonderful diet. Uh, they had perfect eyesight, keen hearing, wonderful muscles, but they probably had a small pancreas mm. or smaller digestive organs because they didn't, you know, there was no stress on these organs growing up. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, or, um, you know, it might have been something about the immune system that hadn't been stressed in a certain way because their diet was so perfect. Mm-hmm. And so in comes, first of all, the sugar, yeah. possibly a cutoff. Uh, then these uh, microorganisms that they have never seen before that their mothers were never exposed to. So they didn't get the immunity in their mother's milk. So it could have been all of these things um, at once that overwhelmed the part of their bodies that just hadn't been developed to deal with this. Mm-hmm. They probably had a small pancreas. And so sugar, I mean, sugar hit them like a, you know, a baseball bat. Yeah. Uh, I, there's a quote in there from a woman in Australia. She was one of the last uh, Aboriginal people to be brought out from the desert. Mm-hmm. And she talks about the, the shock of sugar on the tongue. And she said they, they, they would get bags of sugar and pour it down their throats. It was just, <laughs> and so I'm asking myself, what is it about their physiology that made sugar so destructive? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it destroyed them, whereas our kids can handle a little sugar, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, not I, know good kids, for them, but they- I know kids that basically live off of it, and which... The, you know that's that's a really that's a really interesting thought. I mean, like an, another thing that I'm thinking of too is, you know, a lot of your, a lot of the sacred foods that you, that 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 almost all the cultures have now, as I think about it, um, came from the ocean. Like whether whether they whether the tribes lived right on the ocean and and everything that they they did was what like all their food sources came from the ocean, or if they were like the Peruvians who lived high up in the Andes and yes. they you know, travel all the way down to the ocean to get fish eggs or fish roe um, because they needed it for proper. And it, it wasn't fish and chips that they were getting. For... Yeah. No, no. Yeah. And it, yeah it, was, it, it, was, it was the egg. It wasn't fish and chips. <laughs> yeah. It was fish eggs and shark livers <clears throat> and the flesh 
behind the eye of the fish. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it was, uh, you know, all the organs, like the, um, uh, I think it was the people on the South Seas Island, they, they would catch a fish and they would take out the insides, but then they would put everything but the gallbladder back in and stuff the inside with all the organ meats. Mm-hmm. And that was how they ate the fish. So it was all the parts that we throw away. Yeah. yucky and i talk about the yuck factor quite a bit because the foods that they ate had a what we could consider a high yuck factor yeah and so the real challenge for us is to get these foods back in our diet in an acceptable way and one of the things i'd like to see for example in in america it is illegal to put organ meats in hot dogs yeah i was just gonna say but this is a way here. to hide and I would love to see this law change that we could put liver in the organ meats in the hot dogs. Yeah. Uh, another uh, very important sacred food was blood. Yeah. And um, who eats blood in, in America? Well, in England and all of Europe, you and even in um, Asia, they put the blood in the sausage. And it's delicious. Mm-hmm. And we need to start up that tradition here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and it's, I mean, this is, you know, we kind of arrive at this point where, um, the very things that we need are actually illegal. And you mentioned raw milk, (laughs) raw milk, the raw milk and the putting the organ meats in them, in the, um, uh, you know, back into our, our sauces or things like that. And, and, or, you know, after, after BSE or, or mad cow disease, it's, it's illegal to, um, to sell any of the bones um, from an animal that's over 36 months old now. Yes, right. And so- And it, you can't buy brain anymore. Yeah, you, you can't. can't. buy brain, <clears throat> um, <laughs> which is wonderful food, yeah. Definitely, and I mean, and just in the last, actually a couple of months ago, our, um, uh, we, were, uh, we were slapped with a basically cease and desist order because we were harvesting our animals on farm to try to minimize the stress mm-hmm that our animals had to go through before we, we harvested them because we've noticed a big difference in, in the quality of the, the meat. And our customers uh, also noticed that and they asked us and they were, they basically forego their, their right for the state to protect them and, and to inspect their meat. And we had signed agreements and everything. And but we still came in and we got, we, our farm was threatened with a $10,000 fine and or two years in prison because we were, um, basically offering uninspected meat to our, our customers. And, you know, so I just, all these things, it, another question I ask myself is why are our governments and educational institutions seem to be so antagonistic <laughs> towards these well, in the clients? Meat, in the case of meat, meat's controlled by the mafia in this country and in our country, I don't know about Canada. <laughs> and the, these agencies are just tools of the mafia. They, they may not realize this. Yeah. They're just, you know, taking the easy way, whatever that may be. But um, so this is a very entrenched power mm-hmm. and they are not going to get up easily. No. <clears throat> and and that's where I really like your uh, your belief around this, the power of the individual. And, and these are these are individual choices that we all have to make. And as soon as we educate ourselves and start demanding for uh, our food sovereignty again, the that's where these these few you know mafia type individuals or organizations they they can't 
they can't stand a chance. And, and you've proven that in the States with, with the, uh, I mean, the, the milk mafia there was unbelievably powerful. And I've watched some of these documentaries. Well, like, and it still is. Oh yeah. It, it still is powerful. In fact, we're seeing very cruel consolidation today in so many dairy farmers going out of business. Yeah. But fortunately we have this alternative and yeah. what, what shocks me in a way is how few farmers take advantage of, of the ground that we've covered. And, you know, we've made it possible in so many states, like in, in the state of Maryland, where we are, you can sell raw milk as pet food. And uh, that's what we do on our farm. <laughs> we sell it as dog and cat for dogs and cats. And um, I'm just surprised that so few farmers have taken the, you know, the opportunity to do this because we get $12 a gallon for our milk and what are they getting? They're getting a dollar 30 a gallon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I know from, you know, my work with, with farmers up here and, and some of the, like they, they, they've, they've been, uh, they've bought into a lot of the propaganda themselves, but also so many of them are so um, indebted and uh, yes, yes. The system. they, they just, they, they, to try to change one thing is just, it would break them. And yeah. just, which is again, well, they paid so much money for the right to milk cows. Yeah. yeah. We, we don't have that system here. You have the quota system. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's what's holding Canada back because there's such entrenched opposition to anyone who wants to be out of the quota system. So it's kind of a different uh, fight in Canada. Whereas in the States, we don't have a quota system. We definitely have more freedom in this regard um, yeah. to. Uh, yeah, we've we've got, our, we've got our work cut out for you. The 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 quota to to milk one cow is about twenty thousand dollars. I know. just just for the right to milk a single cow. Yeah. <laughs> and some of these barns have <laughs> hundreds of cows. It's just yeah, and so that's what they're banking on. That well, and Canadian farmers actually get a better price for their milk than American mm -hmm. farmers do. Yeah. And so they can make a decent living. And then what they're betting on is when they retire, they can sell their cows and yeah. really be quite wealthy. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot better for farmers in the conventional milk system in Canada. And that's why it's going to be so much harder to change. Mm -hmm. Whereas here in the States, the situation is absolutely desperate. And um, it's actually much easier to change. Yeah. You've got the farmers behind you. <clears throat> um, one of the other questions that I, I wanted to ask you was, you know, in researching for this book, you, you talk about, you're basically bridging the gap of, of uh, cross culture of all these different patterns, uh, which you've, you and um, Wesley Price, the foundation have, have dis distilled down into principles, which I think are absolutely brilliant. And I'm going to post a link to um, some of the, the work that you guys have done around those, those 11 principles of uh, of a healthy diet but what other patterns did you notice that were similar across culture uh like, like sleeping patterns breathing patterns uh child rearing anything else that you just you know, piqued your interest maybe you didn't have time to do a bunch of research but you just thought oh that's that's funny. i actually didn't look into that very much um one feature which um i actually don't subscribe to is um uh, the swaddling of children. So okay. I, and I didn't write about the book, but it, the Native Americans uh, swaddled their babies for two years. It was considered unlucky for the baby to put his foot in the ground until he was two years old. <laughs> and uh, and the Europeans swaddled children. You know, they swaddled them up and hung them on a hook, so <laughs> keep them out of the way. 
And it was partially for their safety. Uh, the houses weren't as safe in those days. It was harder to keep uh, yeah. children corralled and, and so forth. Um, now, uh, I don't agree with swaddling. I, I think uh, in primitive society, you may have had to do this. But again, I think it all comes back to the fact that now uh, we're much more individualistic. It's yeah. part of our spiritual evolution. And a child needs more freedom from a very early age to express his will forces and so forth. I mean, I'm, I'm talking Rudolf Steiner now, but, um, yeah, yeah. but that was that something that I don't agree with. Uh, um, many of the uh, cultures had really severe um, puberty rights, initiation rights involved um, tattooing or uh, other horrible, painful things. And yeah. I just, I don't agree with those things. So we, we mustn't be idealistic um we're we're focusing on the food here and what were the elements in the food that made them so healthy mm -hmm. doesn't mean we have to adopt all of the practices of primitive people no so th this is um and just to, just to play devil's advocate here and something that i've i've wanted myself um there's a lot of uh you know if, if you go down kind of the the spiritual or the <clears throat> the the kind of esoteric type recommendations on on diet a lot of their um theories that i've heard is is that you know like as our consciousness kind of shifts and and we become more um you know, individualistic as you say and and everything else that our diet should also shift and that we should switch to more of a high vibrational diet that consists of yeah. lighter foods and only um you know fruits and vegetables and things like that what 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 would you say to uh, recommend well um Oh, well, I, I obviously, you're not going to be healthy um, <laughs> just eating fruits and vegetables. Uh, to me, the moral diet, the diet that is the righteous or right diet, is the diet that makes you healthy mm -hmm. <clears throat> and allows you to work in the world. Because let's face it, we've got a lot of things to do here, a yeah. lot of things to clean up and fix. And we can't do that if we're not healthy. <clears throat> And I think a lot of uh, people become quite depressed as they grow older. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, the, the root of this depression is the realization that you are not accomplishing what you said you were going to accomplish before you came into embodiment. You, yeah. <clears throat> you had a little life plan. You made certain vows that you were going to do these things. And if you're too sick, you, you can't do them. No. You don't have enough energy. So the, the right diet, the moral diet is the diet. <clears throat> that keeps you as healthy as and energetic and and um, mm -hmm. full of possible. Well, and you know the um, in terms of trying to find that right diet, the one of the things that that I also found interesting in 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 your book is that the the diets across the world, you know, from Australia to the to the far north to the Polynesians, incredibly varied and. Um, but they all shared similar th those eleven principles that that you talk about, and and I just think that's so perfect and beautiful that that no matter where we live in the world, like on which continent and and even the microclimates and um, of those continents and you know down to provincial and territorial areas, is that like the food can shift dramatically, but it's always perfect for the people that that live there. And it's not to say that we shouldn't get food from, you know, other places and, and have more diversity. But, um, you know, the, when we read some of the stats, like there's 11 calories of food 
11 calories of energy in every single calorie of food that we eat today. Um, you know, taking that moral diet to the more of like a, an ethical question is that do we have the right to, uh, and can our, can our planet support um, everybody eating coconut oil and, and, and vitamins and these vegeta vegetarian vegan diets that supposedly developed and, and were really healthy in this area? Should we be eating those when it's minus 40 outside in Canada and, uh, and we're having to ship it and truck it and, and, you know, it was picked when it was still green. So there's still lectins in the plant. And, um, you know, what are yeah. your thoughts on kind of yeah. the, the energy implications of, well, you know, um, in the 1700s and 1800s, <clears throat> first of all, it was much colder then. Yeah. It's called the little ice age. Uh, before that, it had actually been much warmer. We had the medieval warming period, and you had um, vineyards in Denmark and hmm. dairy farms in Greenland. And then it got really cold. And, um, and what you had in Europe was an energy crisis uh, because they'd run out of wood, hmm. and they didn't have a way to heat and keep warm. And this is what created so much unrest that made people pick up and leave and go to America. When they came to America... <laughs> They had wood, and Europeans were very um, critical of how wasteful Americans were. They'd have a wood fire in every fireplace in their house. Well, they just had lots of wood. But the point is that if we hadn't had an energy revolution, first coal and then oil and gas, uh, we just this planet could not support many people because we'd be out of wood. We'd mm. definitely be out of a way to warm ourselves. So I think we need to look at both sides of this. Uh, we don't want to be wasteful. And, um, you know, a lot of modern agriculture is very wasteful. You know, growing corn to put it in cows when you could just as easily feed them grass, to me, that's very wasteful. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think we need to be grateful also. Yes. You know, when I, walk, when I go into a, I say supermarket, but I, I shop at our little health food store and see the display of fruits and vegetables. I almost get tears in my eyes. It's a miracle. I mean, what other, nobody else in the world at any time had that abundance and that variety and choice coming from all over the world. You know, the world has gotten really small mm -hmm. uh, because of these uh, technologies. So one of the things I say to people is, Take half of your food budget and spend it locally, buy directly from farmers. Mm -hmm. And the other half of your budget, celebrate how small the world has become. And this miracle that you can have rice and pineapple and, mm -hmm. you know, lettuce. <laughs> you have lettuce at any time of the year. So I, I think uh, we shouldn't be chastising ourselves for this. It's a miracle. And it's a wonderful miracle. <clears throat> you just make sure you put the right things on those yeah. vegetables and on your rice and cook your rice the right way and everything. Yeah. Excellent. And make sure you put salt on the vegetables and butter and, you know, <clears throat> doing your yeah, part. <laughs> the, the, there's a lot of paradigms that I, uh, that I held that were shaken while reading this book. And, and one of them was um, one that, um, that uh, I, I found particularly interesting was that you mentioned this several times in, you know, when, when, when Europeans first got here, they described the landscape and how it seemed like a park-like setting and, and or another quote was, 
was how it had appeared that uh, every inch of the land had been swept and and yes. tidied and yeah. and um and then you have another line that says that when um uh a lot of indigenous cultures their their word for wilderness or like the our 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 version of that word um uh, which which for us has very positive connotations and you know healthy vibrant uh freedom and um you know just it's like wilderness is out there and and the, you know the human environment is over here for the indigenous people wilderness had a negative connotation and it meant land that was uncared for and that, dirty land they called it dirty, dirt, yeah dirty land yes. that really um that really hit home for me because of just the the pervasive myth that that um i see so much in our culture today particularly in the young people is that they feel guilty for being alive and yes they, they honestly feel that that the world would be better off if we all died and or we went to mars yes. and we just left nature to be wild so that you know we couldn't wreck it anymore um <clears throat> I, i'm yeah i just like to what are your thoughts on on you know the the youth today that that every morning they have to get up and feel guilty for being alive yeah that, that's such a shame well first of all if they had bacon and eggs for breakfast they wouldn't feel so guilty <laughs> but um, <laughs> but um, you know steiner said steiner said that not only is mankind fallen and the german word is not fallen the german word is separated mm. and i think fallen is the word. we're yeah. separated we're separated from yeah. the spiritual world but also nature is fallen or separated and it is our job to manage nature to make it beautiful to make it abundant to make it um you know clean and that's our job. And the, the Aboriginal peoples felt that very strongly. That was their purpose in life, was to manage the landscape, uh, often with smoky fires, you know, creating a lot of pollution. <laughs> so um, I, I think it's really a shame that this environmental movement has made everybody feel guilty and unworthy. Yeah. Because we're here to, to manage things. I'll just give you an example. When we bought our farm, uh, they'd been taking tractors and cutting hay uh, for um, for years, mm -hmm. and our fields were mostly thistles. We had no topsoil, no earthworms, thistles. Now we've been doing managed grazing. We've been doing this intelligent input. Mm -hmm. uh, we use the tractor to take the water tank to the cows, and you know <laughs> that kind of thing. We still use tractor, but we're not cutting yeah. all the time. We're not harvesting. And over the last four or five years, the thistles have gone away, and we have this beautiful, lush grass. So um, it just requires this intelligent, caring input yeah. from healthy, caring people. <laughs> and then you, have, then you have beauty and abundance, and this is what nature wants. You know, Paul said in the Bible, all of nature is groaning and waiting in anticipation for us to do this. Well, let's get going, you know? <laughs> <clears throat> let's get going. There's lots, lots of work to do, and it, and it all starts with a healthy breakfast. Yeah. That's perfect. Yes, right. <laughs> well, <clears throat> let's, I'll, I'll end there, Sally. It's, that's, that's been an hour, and, and again, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to chat with me today, and also for 
just the incredible work that that you and your organization um, has done for 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 me personally, but I know so many people here in in Alberta um, that are um, if you know in part are, are, are have come back to the land because of of um, you know the insights that you've helped them have and it's really profound it's, it's such important work and and i know it's it's not easy to be a heretic <laughs> in uh in such a dogmatic culture and uh so i just want to thank you for that uh, oh well so, thank you and, and go ahead yes I was just going to say, um, the website of the Weston A. Price Foundation is westonaprice.org. Yep. We have a beautiful new website. It just sparkles. I think it's it lovely. And, uh, and we have a great podcast. We have, uh, we, we, we have videos on the website. We, lots of articles, in-depth articles. We like to make this information available in as many formats as possible. Yeah. Some people like to listen. Yeah. Some people like to read. So. Um, you know, please have a look at the website. And and I and I really I really like how everything is so well referenced. And um, you know, you guys are are quoting scientific articles, and you're even even uh, having active debates or conversations around other articles and, and trying to poke holes in other people's theories. And like you're making it very accessible, but you're also coming at a, at a very high level. Um, uh, you know, working with other doctors, and it's. It's just incredible work that you guys have done. And so I'm going to have links to um, the Weston A. Price organization and um, a bunch of your other stuff, your blog as well. Uh, I highly recommend signing up for the Weston A. Price newsletter. Um, there's some great information on there. Being a member, being a member, yeah. And, and also, yeah. And also, you get a being a member, which another, yeah. I, I, but, another question but, I wanted to if ask. You give us, if, Go ahead. Just, just quickly, if you give us your email, we like to have your email mm -hmm. uh, then you get seven really simple colorful yeah. emails about our principles yeah so it's a real good way mm -hmm. it is and then we hope you'll become a member receive the journal absolutely and so like just um just for my own interest and i'm sure for others how many members do you have worldwide now we have about twelve thousand members oh my <clears throat> we have a much bigger email list. Um, our podcast has had way over a million downloads, and um, we have about 500 chapters worldwide, local chapters. Amazing! Yeah, there's so, two right uh, here. There's two right here in Alberta. There's still three. Oh, good. Three in Alberta. Yeah. Oh, good. Oh, excellent. I um, yeah. Th again, thank you so much, and it's it's uh, very exciting. We live in an incredibly exciting time, and and as you said, we should all be be grateful for the incredible abundance that we have but there's also we've, yes we got work to do <laughs> yeah gratitude not guilt right <laughs> that's right that's right okay yeah. thanks so much sally so when Take you care. when you when you see those teeth marks in the butter you should feel gratitude not guilty <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks for having me and um you know we're trying to make plans for alberta so and i have as you know i have 